It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Thursday, June 3rd, 2021. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. Sitka's child care system was already in crisis, long before the pandemic hit and radically shifted everything. Now, as Alaska's vaccination rates improve and more parents go back to work, they may not have a place to send their children. KCAW's Catherine Rose spoke with child care providers in Sitka about how federal funding is just a stopgap until the larger problems within child care are solved. Last year, I sat down with parents and child care providers to discuss the shortage of child care in Sitka. They said that child care is incredibly expensive, there aren't a lot of local options for working parents, and with high overhead, centers can't afford to pay teachers competitively, so staff turnover is high. That was just weeks before the coronavirus pandemic shook things up for childcare across the country. I think it was kind of scary in the beginning yeah. because you weren't sure where the money was going to come from. Lolly Miller directs the Sheldon Jackson Child Care Center. She says early in the pandemic, when health mandates forced centers to close, they didn't know if they were going to make it. There's not a lot of money in child care. It's, it's, for some facilities, it's a, it's a month-to-month kind of operation. There's not... A lot of extra money sitting around to carry you over for very long. That part was scary, you know, not knowing if we would have enough money, you know, to keep the doors open. But eventually, some money did come. Grants and temporary relief money, including a chunk of the city's CARES Act funds, helped keep them afloat during the pandemic. But now, Miller is running into a new problem. She's only open at half capacity. It's been that way for months, and parents are desperate to get their kids in the door. It's the worst part of this whole thing is carrying the burden of a lot of these people around. You, I can't even walk downtown. Do you got room? Do you got, I don't even go downtown. You know, they're, they're desperate. With parents going back to work, she needs to open back up fully. But she's short-staffed and says she's on the verge of closing if she loses any more teachers. We do not have the staff to be able to operate, and nobody is applying for jobs. And we have tried. It's been on social media. Mine's been in the newspaper. Every parent I talk with who's calling in looking for child care, I'm like, if you know anybody, send them our way. Just down the street, Erica Apathy runs the Betty Eliasson Child Care Center, where they've had to cut back for the same reason. We actually had to very drastically decrease our our program hours for our school age kids because we don't have staff. Mm-hmm. And so I had to tell parents, I'm sorry, I can only have your kids here from 7.30 to 12.30 because if I have them here all day, it can impact our license and we can get shut down because we're not in compliance with it. Providers in Sitka aren't the only ones that are reporting challenges as the state begins to emerge from the pandemic. In March, the state's child care program office surveyed over 400 child care providers. 87% said they were concerned about their operational status changing. Most said financial needs were the top concern. And while in Sitka there are waiting lists for child care, enrollment is actually down statewide. Jenny Pollard works for Thread Alaska, a statewide child care advocacy organization. She says the staffing problem isn't new. Recruiting and retaining early child, the early childhood workforce has it has been an issue prior to COVID and remains an issue today, especially in smaller communities. 
Um, so, you know, this is a workforce that does valuable work, but um, has an average hour, hourly salary of about $12 an hour, and many of them work without any insurance or benefits. She says the low pay is the biggest deterrent, but a competitive hiring market is making it harder than usual to find staff. But higher pay means increased tuition for parents, and tuition is already high to cover operations. But most centers want to pay their staff more. We're hearing the primary support needed is for staff to help with wages and bonuses, incentives for recruitment and retention, and even professional development. In their responses to the state survey, nearly 60 percent of child care providers said they needed funding for salary increases and bonuses in order to retain staff. 47 percent said they needed incentives for recruitment and retention. Some help is on the way. The state is now trying to determine how it will spend federal funds from the CARES and American Rescue Plan Acts, nearly $92 million total allocated for child care. While it's still not clear exactly how the money will be doled out, both Miller and Apathy are hopeful it will come through this fall and help carry them through the winter. But still, Miller says the funding is a stopgap, and she hopes people will begin to advocate for more long-term solutions locally. If they want their people working, and if they want a viable you know, economy here in Sitka, somebody's going to have to start brainstorming. She says child care is critical infrastructure, and only when Americans recognize it as that will the problems within the industry be solved. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. The Juno Assembly got together in person last week for its first regular meeting in person for over a year. During that meeting, the Assembly adopted new rules that institutionalized some pandemic meeting practices. KTOO's Jeremy Shea reports that the new rules also include Indigenous land acknowledgments. And to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God. At the beginning of some Juno Assembly meetings, right after the Pledge of Allegiance, you may have heard something like this. We want to take this opportunity to acknowledge that the city and borough of Juneau is on Clingit land and to honor the Ak Kwan and Taku Kwan, the indigenous people of this land. For more than 10,000 years, Alaska Native people have been and continue to be integral to the well-being of our community. We are grateful to be in this place, a part of this community, and to honor the culture, traditions, and resilience of the Clingit people. Gunosh Assembly members started making land acknowledgments at their regular meetings a few months ago, about the same time they were participating in dialogues on racial equity with the First Alaskans Institute. The Assembly's land acknowledgments haven't been consistent, but now that it's in the rules of procedure, they are supposed to be. Rhonda Butler is the Camp 2 president of the cultural and civic group Alaska Native Sisterhood in Juneau. She's of Haida descent, Raven Doublefin Killer Whale of the Yaklanas clan, and the grandchild of a Klinkit Hluknuk Adi, Raven Koho. It makes me feel good inside that recognition is being given appropriately and respectfully to the people that resided here prior to um, Western civilization coming in and changing things for us. So that's very nice, a very nice, um, respectful touch from the city of Juneau. Butler says land acknowledgments are becoming more common in the community, which she sees as a sign of better awareness of Alaska Native cultures. The package of rule changes were originally about updating options to access city meetings. In committee last month, Assemblymember Alicia Hughes-Scandies asked for the land acknowledgement piece to be added. The committee voted yes, 6-3, to three, 
Assemblymembers Lauren Jones, Michelle Hale, and Mayor Beth Weldon voted no. Weldon and Hale said they wanted to spend more time fine-tuning the wording, among other things. Jones didn't have much to say before his vote. I will be voting no. Um, I don't think we need to do the land acknowledgments. Reached later, he declined to discuss his vote. He said it was too controversial. The Assembly later passed the entire package of rule changes unanimously. In Juneau, I'm Jeremy Shea. Petersburg's Borough Assembly voted on Tuesday to repeal a local face covering mandate. That takes effect immediately. The Assembly also unanimously voted to end the local COVID-19 emergency declaration at the end of June. The borough's incident commander, Carl Hagerman, recommended an end to the emergency and removing the mask requirement. The whole purpose of the emergency declaration and standing up of the EOC was to respond to to COVID-19 and protect Petersburg residents. And uh, at this point in time, uh, I think we've, we've done what we needed to do. And uh, the, the last and final uh, large test of our vaccination rate and the resilience of Petersburg in, in the face of the pandemic, the Little Norway Festival has, has come and gone, was celebrated heartily by Petersburg residents and visitors. Uh, and, uh, and we did not see an outbreak occurred after that. Hagerman said the borough's emergency operations center could restart if the assembly or manager declared an emergency for a future outbreak. It may not look exactly the same as this last one. We've learned a lot over the last 15 months of of dealing with this, but um, the option is there for the assembly and the manager to uh, reestablish an emergency declaration and deal with the problem at hand. The EOC is still recommending people follow guidance from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on face coverings. The CDC recommendations say fully vaccinated people don't need masks in most settings, while people who are not vaccinated should continue with face coverings and other measures. Face coverings remain a federal requirement for airports, airplanes, and other forms of public transportation. Assembly members thanked Hagerman and the rest of the Emergency Operations Center. Here's Jay Stanton Greger. All of you had a very thankless job over the course of the last year plus. And um, judging from comments and I've received in town and emails we've received, uh, know that uh, people appreciate the work you've done. So thank you very much. The vote in Petersburg was unanimous to repeal the local health mandate for face coverings in indoor and public spaces. The Petersburg Assembly also voted 6-0 to for a resolution terminating the COVID emergency declaration at the end of June. COVID screening and testing will continue at Petersburg Airport through the end of June. As of June 1st, Petersburg has three active COVID cases, with just one of those from the last week. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News.